Thank you, Becca. So, just a little bit of context. God had told Israel that they would be exiled to Babylon for 70 years because of their disobedience, because of not keeping the Sabbath day, because of a whole host of things. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, had laid siege to Babylon 70 years earlier, excuse me, to Jerusalem 70 years earlier, taken the city captive, and exiled the people to Babylon. And so 70 years later, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, had, had uh, actually was Cyrus, there were three waves that went back to rebuild Jerusalem after that 70-year period was over. Nehemiah led the third wave back, and Nehemiah's responsibility was to build the wall. And so um, here we are in the book of Nehemiah, and it's talking about this rebuilding process and all of the conflict that they have, that they have suffered. And um, here we come in the midst of the building effort uh, to a problem internally as, as a nation. Um, and we see that once again, one of the things, if you remember our series that we did in Amos, I think a year ago, um, one of the problems that Israel uh, had that God brought prophets to address was the oppression of, of the uh, poor people and of the working classes by the, by the merchants and the aristocracy and the ruling class. And, and it was creating this oppressive environment, and that was one of the reasons why God was bringing judgment upon Israel was because there was this, this lack of concern from the ruling classes uh, for, for, the, for the working classes. And so we see, you know, we, we, we are, it seems like we are in a season as a, as a, as a culture where there are a lot of these uh, sins of leadership uh, coming to the surface. Just this last week, we've had two uh, videos come out. So we had uh, the, uh, um, the CEO of Boeing came out and, and apologized and actually took ownership, kind of, for Boeing's responsibility in the, uh, the two airplane, the two 737 crashes that have occurred in the last five months. Um, it's increasingly seen that Boeing had some responsibility in those crashes due to a software program that they had on the plane. And the, the, the Boeing executive got up and said, you know, whenever a plane crashes, there's a whole line of different things that cause the crash. And he acknowledged that, you know, we, we can we can eliminate one of those possible causes. And so it was, it was kind of an, an acknowledgement that they had responsibility, but also recognized that there are a lot of other factors that play into it. Uh, we also had uh, Joe Biden come out this week with a video explaining all of the indiscretions that he's had over his long political career, in, in particularly in touching women inappropriately. And so did anybody see that two-minute video come out? And so that was kind of not an apology at all. <laughs> uh, didn't really acknowledge uh, any wrongdoing, but just said, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a touchy-feely kind of guy, you know, and, you know, there's debate back and forth on whether it was inappropriate or just part of the cultural times, but, um, you know, I've been to French Canada where men and women greet each other by kissing each other on the sides of their cheeks, uh, that happens in Portugal. 
Uh, it happens in some places in Africa. It doesn't feel weird. I'm thinking that if you had a man, if you were a woman and a man comes up to you and grabs your shoulders and pulls you into him and kisses the back of your head, that that would feel weird. My, that's my assumption. So anyway, it's, it's, he's kind of beating around the obvious conclusion that he has inappropriately touched women. And we see failures in, in leadership across the board, whether it's politics or church or corporations, um, problems in leadership. And what's, what's also very obvious is the, is the tendency for those in these roles not to take responsibility for what they've done. And we see the effects of, of their abuses, of their indiscretions, of their power grabs. We see their abuses and the effects on, on women and children, the poor and needy, and on minorities and others that aren't in positions of power. And so why is it, and I don't think it is, it's not the tendency for us to not acknowledge our wrongdoing is not, a, is not a problem unique to those in leadership roles. It's a problem unique to all of us, okay? So it's not unique. We all have trouble with the idea of exposing or acknowledging what we do wrong. Um, we fear losing our reputations, even though... <laughs> You know, you just see these people's reputations eroding, and they still don't acknowledge it. And you're just wondering, what are they holding on to anymore? But I think we fear losing reputation. We fear losing relationships. We fear losing income. What if our, what if our jobs are at stake because of indiscretions and a lack of moral integrity? We fear that our future plans are going to be thwarted because these things are going to have my, my wrongdoing, my hurting of others. Um, if it's exposed and made known, people will shut me down and I cannot pursue. I may, go to, I may have to go to jail. So our future plans being thwarted, we fear, we fear that. We fear the world, our own worlds kind of crumbling apart, all of our dreams. And we fear not becoming what we envision ourselves to be or what we think we should be. So it's true. Depending on who you are and what position that you're in, um, your world may fall apart. You may lose relationships. You may lose your job. You may lose your income. All of these things might happen to us if we expose what's going on. Again, depending on what it is that we're doing and the contexts that those are in. But I want to see here today out of this text in Nehemiah that there is good that comes from acknowledging our indiscretions, acknowledging our sins, acknowledging our mistakes, acknowledging our oversights. And so if we look here in Nehemiah, we see that what has happened, and it seems like it's related to uh, the work on the wall. And so the work on the wall, because they, you know, they were tracking the dates as this story unfolded, the work on the wall was occurring, um, <laughs> seems like it was occurring right during harvest time or one of the harvests. 
And so you had a group of people in, in Israel at the time that um, were independently wealthy or they held land and they wouldn't necessarily be immediately f affected by um, not being able to work the harvest because they were working on the wall. Well, a lot of the people that were working on the wall were people that weren't living in Jerusalem, that had come in from the countryside, they had land, they had farms, they were, they were working, they, and they had to work to provide for their families and to meet all of their responsibilities, and there was a famine also at the time, all right? So what happened in, in, the, in the midst of this, uh, what was a very focused two-month effort to rebuild this wall, was that there was this, this outcry because you had families that, um, it seemed like there were families that didn't own any land, that were, just, that were very dependent upon uh, being, being paid for their work, and so they're not working the land, they're not getting paid, they're rebuilding this wall, and so they weren't able to buy food. And their, their, their families, their children were going without food. There were those that owned land and owned property, um, but because of the famine, um, or because of the, the financial responsibilities that they had, um, or their inability to work and pull the harvest out while they were still working on this wall. They didn't have any money to buy food. And some were being forced to, <laughs> we use the term, the, the, the text used the word slave, but basically it's like indentured servants, servants where they would say, okay, you can have my children for a certain period of time to work, all right? So, because I can't pay my debts. And so what they were doing is that they were, they were sustaining themselves by maxing out their credit cards is essentially what they were doing. They got so far in debt that they're starting to hire out their children. And it seems like, because one, one of the passages that Becca read, it says, and, and we've even hired out our daughters. Now, um, it doesn't say it, but we know that from Amos... Israel did have a history of its, of its ruling classes engaging in human trafficking and even sex trafficking. It's one of the things that God brought judgment on them for. So it seems like it, that may have started back up again. And see, we, last week we looked at practices that Israel had started to commit again that were reasons for their exile. They were starting to work on the Sabbath again, and they were starting to marry uh, people from other nations that didn't worship the God of Israel, the God of the heavens, the earth, and the seas, the God of everything. And so why wouldn't this be another um, indiscretion, another sin, another practice that they are engaging in just like before? Because that seems to be the pattern. So there's, so there's an outcry. And it's a very interesting how the outcry comes about. It says, now there was an outcry from the people and their wives. An outcry from the people and their wives. Now, why aren't the wives included with the people? I think what's happening, most commentators agree on this, is that it was most likely the wives that finally got tired of what was going on and said, this has got to end. It's affecting the welfare of our families. It's affecting the welfare of our children. And I think that if, if we're true to our experience and honest about it, that, that makes sense because I think w we as men tend to wait a little bit longer, say everything's going to be okay, 
although things seemed like they got to the point of emergency when you're selling your children off. But it seems like that the, the energy behind the outcry came from the wives. It came from the wives. It's not that, the, that, that the, the, the wives are necessarily more righteous, but there is, there is something about um, the perspectives that women have in the context of families and communities where, where they see where things are going wrong, maybe more quickly, and they are more energetic in engaging it. I mean, as a, as a husband and as a father, I would say that that's true of, of our family. My, my wife is much more uh, quick to spot where weaknesses are emerging within us as a family and in wanting to do something to address it, and I tend to stay more calm longer, okay? And so I think, I think one of the things that we see here is that, um, that w- women play and wives play a vital, vital role in, a, in addressing and bringing to light problems that are emerging in the context of our communities. It's interesting, I was uh, just, just kind of reading through some of these things and doing some research, and, um, you know, so I was looking up the, some of the, I was looking for that Boeing video, and, and I ran across an article on um, women in leadership in the defense industry. Four of the top, I mean the big ones, Northrop Grumman, Boeing's defense industry, uh, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, these are huge um, decades-old, very powerful, very large defense organizations. They're all led by women. And there is a, there is a strength that comes from uh, women being in these roles that, at least for the defense industry, they're, they're noticing. Um, and, and so I, I think that um, oftentimes, especially in contexts where um, the, the wives are called to be submissive to their husbands, and certainly that is the biblical teaching. I don't think we, we've understood what that means because the context of being submissive as a wife to her husband is in the context of being a helper. And to be submissive is literally to, to align your mission with the mission of your husband so that there is a so that there is unity of mission within a, within a family and not d- divisiveness. And so the, the call for a wife to be submissive to her husband is a call to unity, all right? It's not a call for her to never say anything. <laughs> it's, it's not a call for her to remain quiet when there's a problem that needs to be addressed. The woman's role is as a helper if she's married. And in that helping role, she needs to see, women, you need to see that you play an important role in, in, in observing and calling out problems that are emerging in your family that your husband may not be seeing uh, or may not be addressing uh, as he needs to. And so husbands and men, we need to understand and listen. We need to understand and listen. And so that's kind of a, that's not the main thrust of my sermon here this morning, but I think it is a very interesting um, aspect of what's going on here. So how does Nehemiah respond? How does Nehemiah respond to this outcry? Well, he's angry. And this was a righteous anger. This is something to be angry at. 
Families are dissolving. Families are starving. Children are being sold because there is a, because of the, the, the wealthy, the nobles, the nobles and the rulers um, are not paying attention to what's going on um, in the nation. You know, and, and when we were going through Amos, we saw that the, the, the people that were being judged for the oppression of the poor lived in a completely different place. Right? So it's, it's, it's often the problem that those with wealth, those with power, are removed just from the daily life of those who are living day by day, who are working and needing to work every day for the income that they earn every day for their, for their basic needs. And so we see here again, it seems like another separation, another separation. So Nehemiah finds out about this and, and he's angry. Now, later on, when we saw this last week, he got angry and he started beating up people and pulling out people's hair. Probably not a righteous response, although the text doesn't say either way. But he doesn't do anything like that in this context. He says he consults with himself. So he's, he goes away and he thinks about, okay, what am I going to do? We're, we've got to get this wall built. The enemies are trying to attack us and harm us. We're working with a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other, and the people are starving and selling off their children. What are we going to do? So he goes to the nobles and the officials, and he corrects them. And then he calls the whole church together and confronts them publicly. So it'd be, he brings them all in here, and we would just all say, hey, and he just rebukes them in front of everybody. And then he explains why what they're doing is wrong. Here's how it's hurting the people. Here is how it's an offense to God. And here is how it's a reason for our enemies to ridicule us. This has got to end. And then we see something quite remarkable. He acknowledges his own role in the oppression. He turns to his brothers and to his family, he says, and says, we have been doing this too. We have been charging interest. We have been practicing unfair practices with the people who are in need. So he puts himself into the group of people that he is rebuking and correcting. So they're not alone. He's responsible as well. He was wealthy. He came to, to Jerusalem wealthy. He was in a wealthy position in Babylon. And he had a lot of resources that he brought with him from the king. So he confessed his own guilt. He identified himself with the perpetrators. Then he comes up with a solution. We're going to give everything back that we've taken, including the interest. Now, these people had, had borrowed money, or they had gotten grain. They had received something. So they benefited, all right, in what they sold off. But these merchants and officials and rulers gave everything back to them. They gave everything back to them. That was the solution that Nehemiah proposed. And all of them agreed to the solution. And then he brought in the priests and he said, okay, we're going we're gonna to basically, it would be like 
the swearing in, you know, when we have a proceeding or an official is being sworn into a, a position, they bring in the Bible and they put the hand on it. So that's essentially, we're going to bring in the priests and everybody are going to, we're all going to make a vow to stick to this proposed solution. So he, as a leader, acknowledged his own guilt, creates a, a scenario that solves the problem for everybody, and then he leads the whole group to a place of unified um, vision going forward. And it says that the assembly agreed. The whole community agreed with the solution. And then they all worshiped God. Okay? There wasn't bitterness. There wasn't resentment. There wasn't a desire for vengeance. And it's not like these were minimal things. But everybody came and they were all able to worship God because the, the nation had been preserved. And people had been taken care of. And the leaders took responsibility. The leaders took responsibility. The gospel frees us to address sin. Nehemiah addressed sin very vigilantly. Not only the sin he observed in the community. He listened. He agreed. He confronted and he acknowledged and confessed his own culpability. And we see that it brought about good, good in the families that were affected, good in the community. And we can see at the end, he, Nehemiah has had a concern for his standing before God. So throughout Nehemiah, you see these places where he says, God, please remember me for my good. Look at all that I have done for the people of Israel. Now, it's an unusual statement. You don't find very many comments like that throughout Scripture. And you don't know if he's, you don't know if he's being boastful. You don't, you don't really, the text doesn't give a comment on how to interpret those passages. But it clearly reflects Nehemiah's perspective that he would have to stand before God someday and answer for his actions answer for his leadership role, answer for his use of money, answer for his treatment of people, answer for his leadership integrity. He knew he was going to stand before God one day. And so the gospel, the gospel frees us to expose sin in ourselves, in our families, in our communities. And what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the gospel is, is Jesus exposing himself to pain to ridicule. He lost his people. He lost his place of glory. He lost his riches. He lost everything, was exposed naked publicly outside the city walls as an outcast and killed for our sins. Last week we saw sins are our disordered loves, things that we love more than God things that we worship more than God, things that we desire more than God, that we believe are going to bring us happiness, but the longer that we go on them, the more suffering and disappointment that they bring. That's what sin is. And so Jesus died for our disordered loves. Jesus died for the destruction that we bring upon ourselves and we bring upon others through the, through the sins that we commit. And then Jesus' public resurrection. So Jesus died and came and exposed himself and lost everything for us. 
But then in his resurrection from the dead, he gained all. He has the name that is above every name. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of glory with the earth at his feet. And he has a name that is above every name, every throne, every dominion, Colossians chapter 1. Full authority, full power, full glory. That is the resurrection. And he brought together a people in complete unity and saved us. That's the essence of the gospel. It is the purpose of the gospel the work of the Holy Spirit, and the work of the church. Think Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. He gets them explaining this beautiful theology of the church and the purpose of the Holy Spirit to bring a people together to be the temple that God is going to dwell in and demonstrate his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the places in the heavenly places, which means that all of the, the beauty and the power and the wisdom and the grace and the love, all, every aspect of God's character is to be revealed through his people functioning as a church as the Spirit unifies and works in them. So this beautiful theology of the church and what God is wanting to do with us from an eternal purpose standpoint. And the next immediate passage is, therefore... Speak the truth to one another. And then goes into the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 and what it means to be a community of people that are confronting sin together. It is the purpose of the gospel, the spirit, and the church to expose, convict, and free us of our sin, which generates unity in us as a people, which sin works against. Sin divides. You saw it in the garden. Man and woman separated from themselves. They separated from God. And violence and bloodshed just spread. The gospel brings us back together. Addressing sin brings us back together. There's a proverb that, uh, that I quote all the time at, at home. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. It may be Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. I can never get that straight. But it says, he who walks in his integrity walks securely. He who perverts his way will be found out. It's not a, it might be found out. He who perverts his way will be found out. God works to expose sin. And so these give us a motivation. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. This is what the gospel is doing. This is what the church is doing. These things are a motivation for us to quickly expose and repent of sin. If we are a Christian, at some point, we recognized our need to be free of sin, and we acknowledged our need for Jesus Christ. And we confessed our sin and began what Martin, Martin Luther calls the life of the Christian is a life of repentance. That's our daily work, the life of repentance from sin. If you're not a Christian, part of it may be intellectual in terms of, you know, you've, you've looked at the evidence for why you're not a Christian. And maybe you articulate that, you know, you, 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 are, you are looking at things rationally and unemotionally and, and you've concluded that no rational thinking person would be a Christian. Aldous Huxley, who wrote A Brave New World and was an author and philosopher, he says this, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. It's not just the philosophical ideas that concern this person. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. 
The philosopher's quest for a world without meaning is a quest to justify him doing what he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We wanted to be free of moral restriction. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. So, a lot of times, what Aldous Huxley, who was not a Christian, was saying is that, listen, you may think that you're not a Christian because it's a rational decision that you're making based upon the evidence. But what he's saying is that most likely you're like us. You're trying to just live in a way that doesn't require any moral restraints. And that's why you choose not to believe in God or follow Christ. See, the gospel, the gospel, you know, interestingly enough, the studies which have been repeatedly done for decades now, the studies repeatedly show that people that are married have more sex and more satisfying sex than those that aren't. So anyway, life is with God. The gospel gives us a new identity, and it frees us from protecting the old person. It frees us. See, when, when we hold on to our sin, when we hold on to our sin, what we're saying is I want, we want to protect this part of me that is bad because I don't want people to know this part of me. I don't want people to really know who I am. I don't want people to, I don't want my, I don't really want to acknowledge myself who I am. And it's protecting evil. And what the gospel does Jesus comes and says, I know who you are. I know your thoughts. I know your desires. I know your actions. All of the ones that you've committed in the deepest, darkest recesses of your mind and in places where you thought you were hidden from it, I know all of those things. I know you need a new identity because you see yourself as trash. I know you see yourself as trash. I am going to give you my identity. I will become the outcast trash so that you can become the fullness of righteousness in me and have a new identity. That is the gospel. And then that frees us. It frees us from fear of being exposed with others. And if we are a community of people that believes and holds these ideals, then we will be a community of people that recognizes people's sin our own sin, and then, hey, here's a group of people that are going to acknowledge that I'm also righteous in Jesus Christ and not judge me and condemn me for my sin. That's why there is so much adamant teaching in Ephesians and throughout the New Testament on addressing our sin because it's in the context of, hey, you are the community of people who have acknowledged that Jesus has taken your sin and given you his righteousness, therefore live that way. And it is freeing, and it is freeing in our consciences, which I think is the most important thing. 
because we can, we can say, as with Nehemiah, Lord God, remember me. I've acknowledged my sin. I've made efforts to follow you. He kind of you know, boasts in what he's done. He says, yeah, you know, I was guilty of oppressing these people, and I'm repenting from it. But since I began this work here, I've been feeding 100 and peop- 150 people every day. I took responsibility. And, so, and I think that that's really consistent with, with all of us. There are a lot of things that we do well, and there are a lot of things that we are utterly evil in. And we have to acknowledge that that's going to be the reality for us, but that we can enter into a place with God and with each other where our consciences can be clear so that we know when we stand before God, we can stand before him and say, I have a clear conscience, Lord God. I have exposed and confessed my sin. I've acknowledged Jesus' forgiveness. I have acknowledged Jesus' righteousness. I have strived for unity with your people. And be confident. And I think that's what Nehemiah keeps pressing us towards. Because as Nehemiah shows, and as the story of Ezra and Nehemiah show, we can't put our trust in a human kingdom. We can't put our trust in human leaders. We can't put our trust in a bold, ambitious plan to go back and rebuild the city and the walls and its temple. What Nehemiah and Ezra keep showing us is that there is a future king coming, and we can put our hope in him, and all of these other things are just going to completely continue to fall apart until that comes back. But until it does, we are going to be a people devoted to righteousness and exposing sin. Let me pray.